Blog Talk Radio. This is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving Live. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem-solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. That's 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's get this show on the road. Hello there. Welcome to another program in which we're thinking about challenging kids and how to help them in school. Um, Got a uh, particular topic that we're going to start with today. Um, You know, in a lot of schools, there's somebody who the challenging kid gets sent to when things start to get interesting in the classroom. Sometimes that's a uh, person in another room. Um, Sometimes that's uh, the assistant principal, Um, somebody. But not the person who the kid was having trouble with in the first place, which, if you really think about it, a rather fascinating approach to things because um, the kid is being sent to the person, to, to somebody who isn't the person that the unsolved problem that set his challenging behavior in motion uh, isn't the person he's actually having the problem with. So then, and that, oh, there's another problem. That usually occurs in the heat of the moment. You know, kids aren't being sent to that person because things are going well. Kids are being sent to that person, whoever that person is, because things are not going well at all, uh, is this a good way to go about doing things? Um, is that even the best timing on things? It's a fascinating setup um, to have uh, mechanisms in place that actually um, create a scenario in which the problems the kid is having aren't even being talked about number one, with the right person, or number two, at the right time. Let's face it, mostly, if that's the setup of things, and that is the setup of things in many buildings, if that's the setup of things, um, the timing's all wrong, and the person's all wrong. Wow. A a very fascinating setup. Uh, Wrong person, wrong timing and that's it's also interesting that we are hoping that challenging kids will have productive conversations with the person who isn't the person they had the trouble with in the first place and at a time that they're most heated up now is that a completely pointless conversation yes but it is it is it the most productive setup possible Mm, not even close not even close to the most productive setup possible, um, especially if you know that 
the most productive setup possible is occurring proactively with the person the kid is having the most well with the person the kid is having the problem with in the first place now are there plan b discussions that take place and it's not the person that the kid is having trouble with in the first place yes that happens and sometimes strategically so um you know who who should the kid be having the conversation with um generally speaking it's going to be the person who is most likely to have a productive conversation with the kid now that may be the person he's having trouble with maybe the person who's the hallway monitor if he's having trouble in the hallway maybe the person who's um he's having the class the teacher of the class in which he's having trouble getting started on his work maybe the person on the school bus who's monitoring things and trying to keep things squared away may may not be that person sometimes that's a strategic decision um to have proactive plan b done proactively obviously uh under the best possible circumstances so it's not that the kid is being asked to do plan b with someone who's not the person he's got the unsolved problem with that I mean ideally the person who's having the conversation with the kid is the person who's involved in the unsolved problem but i don't think that's the most fatal issue here the most fatal issue is the kid is being sent somewhere to have what we hope will be a productive conversation in the heat of the moment with someone who may know absolutely nothing about the problem in the first place and i'm sorry to report that in many school buildings that's the status quo um can that be productive yes i'll describe how in a minute is it ideal uh uh-uh. timing's wrong and often the person receiving the kid trying to have this discussion with him is knows absolutely nothing about what went on all right so now let's talk uh, about what that person can do given that that's the setup of things we probably ought to talk about that Let's talk about what that person can do that's productive. Then let's talk about what it should look like instead. What can that receiving person do? They can do the empathy step. They can gather information from the kid on what just happened and get the kid's concern or perspective on what just went down. that would be calming if the kids being sent to in the heat of the moment that's calming it could be informative if the kids calm enough to give you information uh it could be informative you could get the kids concern or perspective on things i mean obviously it's not the ideal timing but there he is and there you are might as well at least get information about his concern or perspective on this unsolved problem. Can you do the define the problem step? Not really. You're missing the dance partner. You're missing the person 
with whom the kid had the problem in the first place. I don't know if you're going to be able to do the find the problem step there. That's that's where the other player, the dance partner, that's where they get their concern on the or perspective on the table. Very hard to do if the dance partner is missing. Can you do the uh, invitation, brainstorming solutions to this unsolved problem? No, um, you, you can't possibly do that. You don't have a very clear picture of what the adult's concern or perspective is yet. Um, the kid, person who sent the kid down. But you can get a lot of good information. And then comes the follow-up part. And the most you can say to the kid is, thank you for sharing this information with me. I now understand. But I think something needs to happen next. I think we need to uh, see if I can talk to the person who sent you down here so I can get a good sense of what that person's concern or perspective is. And then I think we probably need to put our heads together once we know what the concern or perspective is of both parties. I think we need to put our heads together to think of um, solutions that would be acceptable to both parties, realistic for both parties, mutually satisfactory for both parties. Then, Then we're really working toward a durable solution. Um, so often when a kid is sent to the receiver, uh, that person is the assistant principal, and the assistant principal feels duty-bound, though they know this may be futile. I mean, there are there are people who are responsible for meeting out discipline in schools who don't yet know that much of what we do in school discipline is futile and counterproductive and alienating. But a lot of assistant principals and principals that I've spoken with over the years have freely acknowledged that uh, they know what's written into the school discipline policy really doesn't make a great deal of sense at all and is counterproductive and alienating and makes things worse. But even those who know that it's counterproductive, alienating, and makes things worse um, feel duty-bound to follow the school discipline policy anyhow. And there's a few reasons for that. They feel that, um, well, they don't want to be liable if they don't follow the written code, I've heard that. I don't want to be on the hook. If something bad happens and I didn't do what the policy said, um, that's my rear end that's on the line. But perhaps the most uh, the most pressure that they feel is to do what the folks who sent them the kid expect them to do, and that is punish them. If we want to change things for the better for behaviorally challenging kids in our schools, we've got to work on that. And often 
the person who's the impetus behind working on that is the person like Mr. Middleton in Lost at School who finally, well, he knew that what he was doing was futile, counterproductive, alienating, making things worse, but it finally got the point that he decided to do something about it. I've worked with many principals and assistant principals who did need to start saying, here's the interesting, why am I pausing? For the first time in a very long time, I'm seeing a message on my screen, the screen that I look at on my laptop to... um, do this program and that's telling me that a problem has been detected and my computer is shutting down to prevent damage to my computer well that's great excellent timing on that Um, don't exactly know what that's about but I think I'll shut this baby down the show won't stop I promise Uh, I can do this without a computer screen but uh, it will keep me from um, putting anybody who calls in on the phone uh, at least until I get booted back up again Uh, But many uh, assistant principals and principals are the impetus behind uh, getting the conversation going, as I call it, on rethinking their school discipline program because they feel that what they are doing is futile, counterproductive, alienating, and making things worse. They don't want to be in the position anymore of um, meeting out discipline that they feel isn't doing any good to the frequent flyers in the school discipline program, the kids who are showing up in the office most often and who are, well, the mere fact that they're showing up in the office most often prove positive that uh, whatever they're doing isn't working. The way you know your school discipline program is working is when frequent flyers stop showing up, uh, assuming they haven't been suspended indefinitely or expelled. The way you know your school discipline program is working is they stop showing up if your school discipline program isn't working, they're showing up. And uh, I might have talked about this before, one very wise assistant principal, wise I mean savvy, smart, had his pulse on what was going on in the building, assistant principal, uh, showed me some data once showing me that 75% of the discipline referrals to his office were accounted for by just 22 kids in the building. And this is a big building. 22 kids accounted for 75% of the discipline referrals, proof positive that whatever we're doing with those 22 isn't working very well. Otherwise, they wouldn't be accounting for 75% of the discipline referrals. We need to stand up and say, this isn't working. And if you have data to prove your point, 22 students account for 75% of our discipline referrals. Boy, that is outstanding data. It means you don't have to start by changing things 
for every kid in the building. You start by changing things for the 22. It's very compelling data. You don't have to change it for everybody. Truth is, that may be in your future, but we don't have to talk about that yet. You're changing things for the 22 who aren't doing better in response to what you're presently doing. That just got a whole lot more manageable. Yes, these may be the 22 toughest kids in the building, 22 toughest to turn around, but that's what we're there for. So basically it means um, getting the conversation going on how on a finite number of kids in the building we aren't doing right by them in the discipline department. And we need to start looking at what we're doing and what we could be doing differently. Of course, in the what you could be doing differently department, that conversation comes second after you've given thought to who are these kids and how did they get to be this way? Oh, you know where I'm heading. Um, if you've listened to any of the prior programs, you know where I'm heading now. Um, convincing people that challenging kids have a developmental delay starts with talking about challenging behavior as a developmental delay. Lagging skills using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems to help people start focusing on what really matters. Lagging skills, unsolved problems. Getting the conversation going means helping people realize that manipulative, attention-seeking, coercive, limit-testing, unmotivated, Thinking of challenging kids that way is futile, alienating, counterproductive, makes things worse. We got the wrong lenses on. We got to get the right lenses on if we're going to start thinking about and responding to these kids in a way that is more productive pulls them into the social fabric of our school. Not futile. Productive. So they stop showing up in the office or in whatever office it is that kids show up in when they're having troubles and disrupting the class. So long as we have a system in place where you can just send a challenging kid somewhere, somewhere to just cool down or somewhere out of the building, so long as that's in place, the unsolved problems that are reliably and predictably precipitating in the kids' challenging episodes remain unsolved, and they continue having those problems. Solved problems don't cause challenging behavior. Only unsolved problems do. The setup's all wrong. And in every building, someone's got to get the conversation going. 
we may not have the right lenses on. And therefore, what we're doing to try to, quote-unquote, help, it isn't helping. It's harming. We've got to remember the Hippocratic Oath here. Hippocratic Oath applies to people in schools as well. Do no harm. At least do no harm. But buildings take a giant step forward when collectively the adults in the building put on completely different lenses and are viewing kids more accurately and are viewing challenging behavior as the byproduct of lagging skills and demands for those skills, in other words, unsolved problems. If the setup is all wrong, if the timing is all wrong, then even if somebody's trying to do Plan B, it's emergency Plan B, and they don't know enough about the problem to actually get it solved. So it starts by getting the conversation started. I think we're losing a lot of kids in this building because I think we may have the wrong lenses on and the wrong lenses are leading us to do things that aren't working. Next comes Plan B. Notice the order there. I've talked about this on previous programs. The order is first lagging skills and unsolved problems, then Plan B. If you introduce Plan B first, it comes off as awfully technique and people don't have the grounding they need, the foundation they need to understand why they're doing it in the first place. The grounding is lagging skills and unsolved problems. See, here's the piece that's crucial here. If it's lagging skills and unsolved problems, and if those unsolved problems are highly predictable, and if the main goal is to get those problems solved, and if they're highly predictable, then they can be solved proactively. We, we can actually proactively think about who should be doing proactive Plan B with this kid on this unsolved problem. Who's, who's the ideal person? Maybe it's the person he has a really good relationship with, not necessarily the person he's having the trouble with, although to the greatest extent possible, we want to involve them in some way in the conversation unless we believe that there's absolutely no chance that the kid will talk in the empathy step or stay in the room. If that person's sitting there, well, then that's, you know, then you may have to have somebody different have the conversation with the kid, but that's the important point. We're planning for this. Proactive plan B. We're not waiting until the problem comes up again, sending the kid to somebody emergently and thinking that that person can help solve the problem. Setup's all wrong. So beyond getting the conversation going, what else do we need to do? Well, in our meetings, we need to have that else up in front of us. 
nail down the kid's lagging skills, nail down his unsolved problems, decide which of the unsolved problems we're going to start working on first, and then pull out, and you can find this on the Lives in the Balance website as well, then pull out the Plan B flow chart. Plan B flow chart gives you space to write in three unsolved problems, but then it takes you further because what you want to do is track those unsolved problems over time. Who's having the proactive Plan B discussion with this kid on this unsolved problem? Who? When are they going to do it? Do we know what the kid's concern is yet? Has the adult talked with the kid about what their concern is? How have we arrived at a mutually satisfactory and realistic solution? Is the problem durably solved? If it's durably solved, we can move on to a, uh, another unsolved problem. If not, back to the empathy step to see if we can figure out why. Once again, so long as what we're predominantly doing and quite frankly, we're not predominantly even doing emergency B in a lot of buildings. We're predominantly doing emergency A. We got the wrong lenses on. Problems aren't getting solved. This truly does require some structural changes in the way we go about doing business with our challenging kids. It does mean prioritizing them. Saying, you know what, we are willing to make this commitment to uh, making things better for this population of kids who frequently, so frequently slips through the cracks. We're willing to make that commitment. Bringing some paperwork, but not a whole lot, into our meetings and into our school structures. And then, not that that last part isn't hard, but then planning for problem solving of the collaborative variety. So, and as you can tell, I don't use names on this program, but I hope that uh, this is a high school uh, teacher who um, sent this email, and uh, no names, but I hope that helps answer the question. Ideally, the person doing proactive plan B with the kid is the person he's having trouble with in the first place. If that's the wrong person to be doing it with him, then at the very least we should give thought to and plan for who it should be so that we can start getting some of these unsolved problems solved so they stop causing challenging behavior and this kid's long-term prospects start to improve. As you've heard me say before, every challenging kid has a pile of unsolved problems that are reliably and predictably precipitating as challenging episodes. The goal of intervention is to start solving those problems one at a time. If we don't do that, as a high school teacher said to me once, it's not just the problems that have piled up over time, it's the kids who've piled up over time. And though I don't like the uh, visual imagery there, the kids keep piling up and we keep doing emergency plan A when we could be doing proactive plan B. If you want to call in, the number is 646-727-2691. 646-727-2691. 
got a challenging kid who you're trying to do plan B with? Tell us about it. Are you running into trouble? Tell us about it. Having trouble bringing your colleagues on board? We talked about that in the last program, but tell us about it. Having trouble getting the higher-ups in your building or your school system to see things the right way and start to change things for the better for challenging kids? Tell us about it. Six four six seven two seven two six nine one. A few Plan B difficulties that I've seen people running into in my travels over the last week or so. Um, boy, I'm in a lot of schools these days and talking to people a lot about how to use the ALSIP. Finding that people are not having so much trouble using the ALSIP. They, they typically don't have trouble figuring out what a kid's lagging skills are. One thing I'm still running into a bit, people sometimes still... Maybe it's my fault because I haven't necessarily explained this so well. You know you know when you haven't explained something so well when people um, uh, start talking about collaborative problem solving in ways that aren't quite spot on. A lot of people are still thinking that the goal of intervention is to teach the unsolved, uh, to, to teach the lagging skills directly. Not so. Generally speaking, and this is not always true, but generally speaking, the lagging skills are going to be taught by mere virtue of doing plan B on unsolved problems. The lagging skills, some would need to be taught directly. Some of the social skills would need to be taught more directly. Some communication skills might need to be taught more directly. But generally speaking, the main reason for filling out the top section of the ALSUP, and this is why I put lagging skills first, is to make sure that we have the right lenses on is to make sure that we're not wearing those manipulative, attention-seeking, coercive, limit-testing, unmotivated lenses. Those would lead us in a completely different direction. But rather to make sure we've got the lenses of lagging skills on. This is a developmental delay. Challenging. Kids are challenging because they lack the skills not to be challenging. If they had the skills not to be challenging, they wouldn't be challenging because doing well is always preferable to not doing well, but only if you have the skills to pull it off. We've got to make sure we've got the right lenses on. But those lagging skills are typically not going to be taught directly. They're going to be taught indirectly through the solving of problems. So once we have the right lenses on, the unsolved problems actually become the focal point. Then we're ready to move on to unsolved problems. We're ready to start solving problems with the kid. And once again, there are three ways to solve problems. Plan A, Plan B, Plan C. Plan A, you're solving problems by imposing your will as you know, that's what causes challenging behavior in challenging kids because they don't have the skills to handle imposition of adult will very well. Plan C is when you're dropping a particular problem, at least for now, as an act of prioritizing. You've got many unsolved problems listed. Can't solve all of them at once. 
some of them you're going to have to drop for now. Those are your smaller fish while you're busy frying your bigger fish. Plan B, that's where you're solving problems collaboratively. And the ingredients of Plan B, getting the kid's concern on the table, helping him clarify what his concerns are in the first place, helping him learn to articulate them, legitimizing them, understanding them, getting your concern on the table, helping him or her understand what your concerns are, working together towards solutions that address both concerns and that both parties can actually do what they've agreed to. Those ingredients actually teach a lot of the skills that you'd find listed on the ALSA, but you've got to make sure you've got the right lenses on first. Lagging skills first, unsolved problems next. You're not teaching most of those lagging skills directly, but rather indirectly through the collaborative resolution of problems. Another uh, common thing that I'm running into in my travels these days, um, leaving the empathy step too quickly before you really have the clearest possible sense of the kid's concern or perspective on a given unsolved problem. And I must say, I'm seeing some people doing some incredible empathy step these days, just incredible. People are getting really good at this, and mostly, I'm pleased to report, just by reading Lost at School and by watching the videos on the Lives in the Balance website. But some folks are still leaving the empathy step too early and therefore um, leaving the empathy step before they've had their aha moment before they really have a clear sense of what the kid's concern or perspective is on the unsolved problem they're trying to talk with the kid about, and therefore end up in the invitation, the brainstorming phase, without a clear enough idea about what the kid's concern or perspective is, and therefore they're not even sure what problem they're trying to solve because the kid's concern or perspective is too vague. Vague concerns lead to vague solutions, you want to hang out in the empathy step until you've had your aha moment. It's got to add up. Got to you say to yourself, this makes sense to me. And while I've always emphasized the need to drill, and while I've always said that drilling usually focuses on the who, what, where, and when of unsolved problems, I'm seeing some really cool stuff going on in the empathy step these days with people doing a lot of comparing and contrasting. A lot of the drilling I'm seeing is people saying to kids, and this is great drilling, well, why do you have this problem under this condition, but not under this condition? Why do you have trouble writing in English, but not in social studies? Now you're really getting down to it. That's great drilling. You don't want to skip the drilling. Otherwise, you emerge from the empathy step without having a clear sense of the kid's concern or perspective on an unsolved problem, and therefore the solution that you arrive at in the brainstorming step 
will only address the concern or perspective that you don't have a very good understanding of in the first place. Hang out in the empathy step. We're not in a rush. A lot of people will say to me, I've only got 12 minutes to do plan B, so I've got, and good for them, they're doing proactive plan B, by the way. But they're thinking, okay, four minutes for the empathy step, four minutes for define the problem, four minutes for the invitation, 12-minute plan B. Mm. We don't always know how long plan B is going to take. It may take 12 minutes just on the empathy step. Luckily, there's tomorrow to keep going. You don't want to limit yourself to four minutes in the empathy step. You may emerge from the empathy step without having a very clear sense of the kid's concern or perspective on a given unsolved problem. And then the other thing I'm seeing a fair amount of is what we might call preordained solutions. Uh, people, <laughs> you know, when I'm with them and we're talking about it, it's always, um, you know, funny when they realize, you know, I did go into that plan B with a preordained solution. I went into plan B without knowing anything about the kid's concern or perspective. I went into plan B thinking I already knew what the solution was, and then I steered the ship in that direction, and uh, I ended up docking the ship at a place that was preordained, but that didn't take the kid's concern or perspective into the into account, because how could it have? I didn't know what the kid's concern or perspective was in the first place. You don't know where the ship is heading when you embark on your plan B journey, your plan B adventure. Uh, the kids' concerns steer the ship in a particular direction, then your concerns are another set of currents that have to be taken into account. The ship goes where the ship goes. The ship heads in the direction that the concerns of both parties, the kid and you, take it in. And so where it's going to dock before it leaves, unknown. That's the adventure of Plan B. Now, people new to Plan B have trouble thinking of this as an adventure. They could probably do with less adventure in their lives, but it's actually kind of the cool part of Plan B. You don't know where the ship is heading. As I've always said, you don't know where the plane is landing before it takes off. Let's stick with the ship metaphor. No mixing metaphors on this program. It's the currents of the concerns of both parties that point the ship in a direction. Where is it docking? In some realistic and mutually satisfactory place. That's where it's docking. Do you know what's realistic and mutually satisfactory beforehand? You can't. You don't know what the kid's concern or perspective is. We don't know where the ship's heading. It heads where it heads. When it's plan A, it's only your current that is steering the ship. When it's plan C, it's the kid's current that is directing the ship. Plan B, both currents. Well, that can make the waters get a little bit choppy, but nowhere near as choppy as they get when you're doing plan A. You want to add some chop to the problem-solving waters? Do plan A with a challenging kid. And watch that canoe tip. 
because as I say on the homepage of Lives in the Balance, uh, challenging kids are in treacherous waters already. You oversteer the ship with a challenging kid, your canoe's going to tip. The thing about canoeing is if you both got paddles, and in collaborative problem solving, you've given the kid a paddle, his concerns do matter. He's got a paddle. You're willing to take them into account. Did he find the problem step? You've got a paddle too. Cool. You both have paddles. But that means that you're working together toward the end of reaching a destination on this unsolved problem that you both can do and that works for both of you. Still seeing a little bit of lecturing going on in the empathy step, sermonizing, telling the kid what he has to do. Hmm, that's not plan B. Telling a kid what he has to do is not plan B. Sounds more like plan A. Let's not mix plans here. We're not mixing metaphors. We're not mixing plans. There's no lecturing going on in plan B. Just two people trying to get their concerns on the table and then trying to work towards solutions that work for both of them and that they can both do. Consistent with the theme of this program, much better done proactively. Doing Plan B emergently, as you may well know already, your biggest enemy is added heat. The kid's hot. You may already be hot. And timing, bad timing, emergency B, you may be in a rush. Proactive plan B is planned. We're thinking about who the kids should be doing plan B with, what unsolved problems are our top priorities. We're planning for it. We're getting coverage if we need it. If we don't need coverage, we're doing it at one of the logical times during the day. Recess, if the kid will do it. Lunch, if the kid will do it before school, after school, prep time. But we're planning for plan B. We're doing it proactively. We are not relying on sending the kid to somebody who is responsible for solving the problem when the kid is hot, a problem that they know nothing about with the kid's dance partner absent. My travels tell me that there are some really great people in schools trying really hard to implement Plan B. And uh, with just a little bit of coaching, similar to what I'm doing in this program, people are getting really good at it. And that's about as cool as it gets. Because challenging kids are being helped, outcomes are being preserved, you get the idea. That's going to do it for us for today. Thanks for listening in. Uh, where there is no program next week. It's Martin Luther King Day here locally and in many parts of the country. So in many parts of the country, there's no school. We're going to pass on next week's show program. I hate calling it a show. I always slip and try, but then sometimes think of the word program. And the following week, I'll actually be doing the show from... Uh, the Bar Harbor, Maine, I just said show again, didn't I? The following week, I'll actually be up speaking on uh, Monday the 25th.
up in Bar Harbor, Maine, um, and um, we'll be doing the program from there, live, uh, probably with some live participants. And then uh, in one of the, uh, probably the following week, uh, Alfie Cohn, author of uh, many books for educators on how to help kids in general, um, He's going to be on one of our programs moving forward, but I'll let you know about that ahead of time. In the meantime, thanks for listening in today. Talk to you in two weeks.